And thank you very much to Tanya and Christopher for playing for us this morning. Let's take your Bibles again, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21. We'll read together Acts 21 from verse 15 all the way down, and I'm going to go a little further than we had planned. We'll read uh, to the end of verse 28. The Word of God says, actually, I'm going to ask you to stand, if you don't mind. Please take your Bibles and stand with me as we read God's Word together. Word of God says, after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to stay. And after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard about them, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do as we tell you. We have four men who have a vow upon themselves. Take them along and purify yourself together with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And then everyone will know that there is nothing to what you have been told. They have been told about you but that you yourself also conform, keeping the law. But regarding the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took along the men, and the next day after purifying himself together with them, he went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who instructs everyone everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Let's pray. Loving Father, this morning we come again. We continue, O God, in your presence. We cry out to you, O God, for the Spirit's anointing this morning that we might preach the word of God. Father, we pray for the words, your words, chosen and effective to reach our hearts. Father, we pray for boldness to speak, for utterance to be given, for grace to season the words, and for love to be the only motive for preaching. Father, we pray that your Spirit would open the hearts and minds of all of us to hear and respond. 
Father, we pray for the salvation of the lost, the edification of the saints, the encouragement of the downcast and discouraged. We pray, O God, for the consolation of those who are grieving and the comfort of the afflicted. And Father, too, for the affliction of the comfortable and compromising. Father, we pray this morning for a demonstration of your spirit and power. We pray, O God, again for the preacher to decrease and for Christ to increase and be our vision this day. And we ask you these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Would you have a seat, please? There's an old saying that goes, the best of men are merely men at their best. In the Old Testament, twice Abraham, the patriarch, compromised the truth of his relationship with Sarah. He lied to both Pharaoh and to Abimelech, saying Sarah was a sister when, in fact, she was his wife. And when they left Egypt laden with gifts from from Pharaoh, he also took with him the servant girl whose name was Hagar, with whom Abraham would father a child named Ishmael, who would in turn father the 12 tribes of the Arab peoples who would become an unceasing problem for Israel throughout their history. Compromise, which seemed so harmless, even helpful at times, costs dearly. Compromise is costly, but God is gracious. King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, compromised also. A man after God's own heart, anointed as king over God's people, Israel. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He composed so many of the psalms and songs for Israel's worship. He valiantly defeated many of the Lord's enemies, including Goliath, who led Israel in faithfulness to the Lord for decades. He did, until one evening at home, On a rooftop, when he should have been out with the army, he saw a beautiful Bathsheba bathing in full view of the palace, and David compromised. He saw, he inquired, he sent, he took, and he committed adultery with her. One sin led to another, adultery to deception, to conspiracy, and finally to murder, and he thought he got away with it. But God saw it all. His compromise into sin cost their infant child's life, and peace in his family for the rest of his days. He knew trouble and hardship. Compromise is costly, but God is still gracious. Solomon likewise compromised, richly blessed by God with great wisdom and fabulous wealth wealth and peace throughout his reign. He disobeyed God's commands. He compromised by gathering many horses and chariots, by Uh, gathering many wives and concubines, totaling almost a thousand in his harem, building for them temples and idols for their foreign worship. It was they who led his heart away from the Lord. The result was God's judgment, dividing the nation of Israel into two kingdoms. Later in life, Solomon returned to walk with the Lord and composed Ecclesiastes as his reflection on his life lived in costly folly despite his great wisdom. Compromise is costly, but God is gracious. And God still used Abraham and David and Solomon. Now, one of those men who made those compromises set out beforehand to reap and endure the consequences of their actions. And in their situation, God was gracious to them, despite their compromise. So, what has this got to do with Paul in Acts 21, verses 15 to 26. 
This is the hard part. The reality is that if God had not graciously intervened and Paul had carried through with his notified intentions in the temple, he would have made a far worse compromise than the one he actually did, which was indeed a mistake. It may be difficult for some of us to grasp That this steadfast, seemingly unwavering giant of a godly man who had already suffered much and accomplished much for Christ and the gospel could actually take steps in that wrong direction. I read through commentary after commentary that said all sorts of things. He was acting in kindness and love and grace towards other believers. He was trying to build unity at small cost. And then I read these words. Uh, this is James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, some of you will know that name. Faithful Bible teacher and pastor for many years at uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania. In his commentary on Acts, he wrote these very sobering words. Paul's error was worse than hypocrisy, though it was that too. It was a compromise of the gospel. The same apostle had written many New Testament books. The man who argued so forcefully that we are saved by Jesus Christ alone was about to go to the Jewish temple in the presence of the very priest who had crucified the Lord, there participate with others in a sacrifice of an animal that was meant to be an atonement for sin. Close quote. Paul's my hero. I like Paul. I watched what he did. I watched the way he stand up. You read the scriptures and you just kind of go, what happened? Paul, what were you thinking? And the great difficulty is it's so easy to take a compromising position on what he did and where he wound up and try and present the truth. Well, he was just trying to build unity. Maybe he was, but it was a colossal mistake. But God is Gracious, I'm going to keep saying that because that's, the, to me, the greatest part of this whole message is compromise is costly, but God is gracious. And we're going to see that grace at the end, but we've got to work our way to get there. The very best of men are indeed men at their very best. Compromise can happen to us all. Family of God, listen, watch out. Beware. Compromise slips in quietly as the seeming best response to a difficult set of circumstances, but its end is always costly. Last week, we saw Paul's unwavering determination to go to Jerusalem despite repeated warnings and pleadings of his friends. They gathered from the Gentile churches a collection, a gift for the Jewish churches, and Paul insisted on delivering it himself, perhaps As evidence of God's working, he also knew what the Lord had told him, that trials and afflictions were awaiting him. It was indeed God's will for him to come to Jerusalem. The Spirit's direct speech through Agabus to Paul spelled it out. In Jerusalem, these things will happen. But it was not God's intention for him to compromise as he did. Paul had returned to Jerusalem at least twice during his missionary travels. In Acts 18, verse 22, he went up to the church, which most commentators will say it means the Jerusalem church. And prior in Acts 15, he and Barnabas had attended the council to discuss the question of the Gentiles' inclusion in God's household. 
He left Jerusalem at the close of Acts 15 with the apostle Peter and James's blessing on his desire and plan to continue taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He'd taken James's letter to them, forbidding uh, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols and the eating of blood and eating meat strangled and sexual immorality, which means simply fornication and prostitution and homosexuality. Paul and company had traveled and preached the gospel. They'd seen Jews and Gentiles converted to saving faith in Christ. They'd seen churches planted in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and a host of other places. During his missionary work, he'd written some of his most theological and profound letters. In AD 48, during his first missionary journey, he wrote Galatians. During his, uh, sorry, that, that book describes the new covenant life through Christ's death. It describes justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it talks about standing firm for the gospel despite temptation to compromise. During A.D. 49 to 51, in his second missionary journey, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians, describing and reassuring them about Christ's soon return. In 52 to 56, during his third missionary journey, he wrote the four Corinthian letters, of which we have, as I understand it, the second and the fourth, discussing godly life and living in the local church, talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols, among other things, and whether or not one should be circumcised. These are issues that are coming up right here in our passage with the Jews. In AD 56 to 57, somewhere in there, shortly before arriving in in Jerusalem, he wrote the book of Romans. Arguably, and I would say absolutely, the greatest work on the gospel ever written. He wrote that just before he got to Jerusalem. If you notice as you read the text, and I encourage you to go back and read it again later this afternoon, Luke provides no direct speech from Paul after his statement in verse 13 that their words and weeping were breaking his heart. Until verse 37, when he begs permission to speak to the Jewish crowd, we have no insight from Luke or Paul as to his state of mind, his thinking, his desires, Only his actions are described with, frankly, little detail. Paul arrived in Jerusalem, determined to be there, to deliver his gift to the Jerusalem church, from the Gentile churches, and he arrived right in the midst of a very difficult situation. Church in Jerusalem had grown greatly in the time he'd been gone, with one additional very striking comment provided by James that describes an underlying problem in the church, the believing Jews were all zealous for the law. That was a problem. Not only that, but history tells us that there had been several uprisings amongst the Jews against the Roman occupation, and Felix the procurator, who put those uprisings down with a very particularly brutal force, and that aroused Jewish nationalism. It was at an all-time high. Any involvement with the uh, any involvement or relationship with the Jews or Gen- with Jews and Gentiles together was looked on with suspicion. See the problem? By the way, into this situation, Paul rocks up with eight uh, Gentile friends coming with him. It's it's trouble. Not only that. 
from James and the Jerusalem elders' words to Paul in verse 21, we learn that exaggerated reports of Paul's teaching had reached the Jerusalem Jewish Christians, leading to a doubt and distrust of this hardworking servant of God. Not only that, if that wasn't bad enough, the chief priests and leaders of Judaism have not forgotten that Paul, once called Saul, had turned against them in his conversion and preaching the gospel, and the Hellenistic Jews had already plotted and tried to put Paul to death. And he's walking to Jerusalem in the middle of all that. He arrives, Sopater, Pyrrhus, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Tychicus, Trophimus, Dr. Luke, and possibly Timothy, although he may have already gone back to Ephesus by this point. Eight Gentiles and one mixed Jew Gentile with Paul walks into that very tense environment. Paul arrives and the church greets them gladly. We see it in verse 17. Following day, Paul goes in to see James, the Lord's brother, and the collection is presented to the elders, although there's no mention of it, nor any thanks being given to the Gentile believers. Time out for a sec. Am I deafening you? I see a couple of you doing this. Okay, good. Just want to make sure. Paul arrives, and the church greets him gladly. Following day, he goes in to see James. The collection is presented to the elders, although there's no mention of it nor any thanks being shown to the Gentile believers. The Jerusalem elders hear of the work of God among the Gentiles, and rightly they give glory to God for his work through Paul. But immediately the Jerusalem elders turn to their issue at hand. If it becomes known, and they're sure it will, that Paul is here, it presents a problem for the Jewish elders. You say, how so? Well, If the Jerusalem elders openly support Paul, who is believed to have departed from living according to the customs, traditions, and Mosaic law, and to be associating with the Gentiles, which many consider to be traitorous to the Jewish cause, then the Jerusalem elders will fall from favor from the Christians in the group. Makes sense. But... If they openly reject Paul and the Gentiles, Paul who has suffered much and accomplished much for the sake of the name of Christ and the Gentiles, whose conversion to faith in Christ is recognized as God's work among them, have just received a generous gift from the, uh, from the Gentiles to the church. They would be speaking and acting against God who is clearly at work in the Gentile peoples. It will cause great difficulty and likely further division in the church. To use the old expression, they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. What a great dilemma. Unbelieving, apostate, Judaistic Jews hate Paul for his conversion and preaching Christ. They hate the Gentiles because the Gentiles, and some of them are Romans, represent the group that are beating them up and crucifying them. The Gentile believers in the midst of all this are perhaps wondering just how welcome they really are in the Jerusalem church. The the believing Jews, the zealous for the law, are clearly suspicious and doubting him. And one commentator, sort of filling out the scene, says, you can see Paul sitting in James' house, and he just starts to look around and suddenly feels very much alone. What should Paul do? What should the Jerusalem elders do? You've ever been in a situation like that? I don't think I have, not, not with that sort of pressure. I've been in some very high-pressure situations. Church meetings can be some 
some fun sometimes. But not like that. Pretty much everybody but the eight guys that came with him are looking at him sideways. But you know what? It's in these moments of pressure and difficulty that compromise so quickly rises up. And the decisions we make in these moments must be carefully considered under the clarifying and simplifying light of God's word. Isn't it amazing when you bring your situation to scripture, all of a sudden what has to be done or what has not to be done becomes so much clearer and so much simple, simpler. In the end, the solution is almost always simple and costly. Not costly as in the costly consequences of compromise, but costly in terms of the potential loss of favor and position and standing in others' estimation. The truth must be upheld and abided by with much grace, much love, and much patience, but upheld nonetheless. Uh, if you have a chance, uh, go on YouTube, and I don't normally recommend this, but uh, go and look up uh, Albert Moeller. Uh, it was his opening conversation with the students of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's probably about a 35-year-old video. It's a young Albert Moeller standing there, and he is in front of about 350, 400 students, and they are furious with him. Because he is standing there saying, the Bible clearly teaches a complementarian view of ministry, meaning male leadership in eldership and posturing of a church. And there were, there were female students that did some horrible things to him. And he stood firm. And it went on for a couple of years until finally the Lord just cleared the situation up and he carried on. Without compromise, in grace, quietly, gently, but firmly, he held to the truth. So in verse 22, the Jerusalem council now asked Paul. They put it in his court. What is to be done? What should Paul do? What should the elders do? If Paul had made any response, we're certainly not given it. And Luke simply records their question and their immediate unwise command to Paul. And some of you may feel that, that James Montgomery Boyce and myself are being rather harsh with Paul, describing what he does here as hypocrisy and compromise. But I want you to consider the text of Scripture. Let's get back to those verses again in Acts 21, verses 23 to 24. The elders, or likely it's James, say, Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expense so that they may shave their heads and all will know there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. They were not suggestions that they made. He wasn't given a choice, really. Those are commands. Go, take, purify. They're all imperative commands as I understand it. What they are commanding for Paul to do is massive. I think we have to understand this. 
to purify himself, that was one of their commands, was a tradition that had been developed from Old Testament law. And in that first century situation, its purpose was so that a Jewish man or woman who had traveled or spent any time among the Gentiles upon their return would undergo a ritual cleansing to rid themselves of any defilement gained by time spent with Gentiles. Paul had just arrived in Jerusalem with eight of them in tow. And Paul, as we'll see in the next section, was seen spending time with Trophimus in the city. But remember this. Remember what Paul had written himself not so long ago. Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29. He said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Gentile believers, among whom Paul had spent so much time as believers in Christ, had been cleansed by God from every defilement. Remember Peter on a rooftop, getting hungry, has a vision, big sheet comes down, and a voice says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And he said, oh, but by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. It happened three times, and then the the, the sheet went back in the sky. Peter is recounting them the principle behind why he went into the Gentiles' house and preached the gospel in Cornelius' house, and the Gentiles came to faith in Christ. What God has cleansed, that's critical. Consider also what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9 and verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. 1 John 1 verse 9, the Bible tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The command to Paul to go and purify himself which in the Judaistic culture of his day had referenced the defilement and contact with the Gentiles, which Saul, or Paul, the former Pharisee, would have understood obedience to the command would not only ingratiate himself with the believing zealous for law Jews, it would surely strain his relationship with the Gentile believers. You guys are unclean. I got to go get purified so I can go to the temple. That's not a way to build unity by the way, not remotely. And Paul, without a recorded word of response, he agreed. But the Jerusalem elders were commanding went directly against the spirit and word of the gospel. And he agreed to it. But wait, there's even more. Jerusalem elders further described four men who have taken a vow at the completion of their vow, that to have their heads shaved, indicating a very high degree of certainty that it's a Nazarite vow that they're under. They tell Paul to take the men, purify himself, and pay their expenses for their heads to be shaved, to which Luke adds in verse 26 the description of Paul's own actions. He goes into the temple and gives notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. What's the big deal? You say, okay, so Jesus did it all. I mean, it doesn't have any effect. Oh, it has a huge effect. Number six, 
uh, verses 1 to 5, and then if you skip over to verse 13 to 21, it describes the requirements for the Nazarite law and what had to happen. It was so a man could dedicate himself to the Lord. He must abstain from wine and strong drink and vinegar, fresh and dried grapes, grape juice, or even grape seeds. He must not cut his hair until the days of his vow are completed. He must not go near or touch a dead person or a dead of any kind, I do believe. At the completion of his Nazarite vow, he must bring, listen, one male lamb for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb for a sin offering. That's a problem. One ram without defect for a peace offering and a basket of unleavened cakes with oil for a grain offering. His head was shaved and the hair was then placed on the fire underneath the peace offering. Paul gave notice for his involvement and participation in those offerings. Those offerings clearly had no further significance for the gospel to salvation because Christ had already offered himself up in our place as our burnt offering. As our sin offering, our peace offering to make peace and reconciliation between us and God to return to those offerings, even if only for the sake of the four Jewish devotees, for the sake of the church unity, was to recognize some validity in making those four times three offerings is 12 offerings. Extremely expensive on one level, which is a minor point, but to go and make all those offerings again would to go would be to go against the gospel. And you think, Paul, what are you doing? But you know, beloved, as I sat in there early this morning, just working through this and editing and rethinking again and again all of this, I thought to myself, it's so easy. Nice church, lovely people, great singing, Bibles in our hands. Nobody's putting a gun to our heads to stand here for us and say, Paul, what do you think? What's wrong with you, Paul? You put yourself in Paul's shoes. There are thousands of believing Jews who are zealous for the law. There's hundreds of priests who hate him. There's a detachment of Roman soldiers who will shortly be caught beating him, even though they had no legal right to. And he's standing there with eight friends who are also looked on with distrust and disbelief. And he's wondering, what do I do? That was a tremendously difficult set of circumstances he was in. I'm not excusing what he did, but I want us to all not lose sight of where he was. There's absolutely no need whatsoever for such offerings. Paul has already argued extensively in Galatians, Romans, and parts of Corinthians that Christ has offered himself up for us all in our place. The writer to Hebrews has also argued that our conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. There's no need for them to make those offerings in the presence of those priests who had delivered Jesus over to his death was to affirm that Christ's death was insufficient. That's a problem. Paul, at their direction, had, I'm going to emphasize this, begun to compromise the gospel and bring division, not unity. This would not have brought unity, not remotely. In fact, it would have driven a massive wedge between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Some will argue, Nelson, you big dummy, Paul was doing this with the motive of bringing unity to the church. Compromise for the sake of you. That's a good thing, right? Don't we hear that in our culture? We hear it in our culture, in our jobs, in our families. You got to compromise for the sake of unity. Come on, man. Break it down a bit. 
Don't be so high-minded. Compromise. Let it slip. What's the big deal? No one will notice. Nobody will catch you. Who's going to see? Don't we hear those voices when things come up? It's true, isn't it? No. If he had done this, he would not only have compromised the gospel, he would have deepened the division between Jew and Gentile, indicating to all, especially the Jewish believers, that Gentiles, even if they believe in Christ, are still ritually defiled and must submit and be under the law's demands in order to complete their salvation. Scratch out Galatians. In a sense, this would be to concede the very argument the Judaizers were making in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council the last time he was there. It would be to reverse Ephesians 2 and reinstall the barrier of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. That wall in the temple dividing Jew and Gentile would be firmly established right in the middle of the church. That's what's at stake. Some might also say, but hang on a second. Paul did a vow. He shaved his head. Remember back X18? Good question. Paul's vow, likely a Nazarite vow, given his head shaving, was perfectly acceptable simply because he made no sacrificial offering at the conclusion of that. He simply shaved his head in that customary way of doing it to show that vow was completed. He didn't go to, there's no record of anywhere going back to the temple and burning his hair with the offerings. It's not there. It is a Nazarite vow, but he was living as a Christian Jew without compromising the gospel in that stance. In this stance, he is, in a sense, almost pushing Christian aside and going back to Judaism. That's the severity. That's the nature of it. Paul has heard their command, their strongly worded suggestion. He's recorded as making no comment, no argument or suggestion. He just acts. I'm going to say it again. I love Paul. He's one of my heroes. I look up to him in that sense, and I take examples for him. So in effort to to give him as much benefit of the doubt as possible, I want to say this too. He had just come from several days of travel where his beloved friends had pleaded with him not to come to Jerusalem to the breaking of his heart. And the word behind breaking is like a hammer smashing on glass. He said, you're tearing me to pieces with your weeping and your pleading. It was all of them. It wasn't just a few. He was alone against a group in a different situation. Now he's alone against a much bigger group. He was surrounded on all sides. Some who hated him, the chief priests and the scribes. Some who were violent towards his Christian Jewish brothers and sisters, the Romans. And some who doubted and now pressured him, the Jerusalem elders in the church. So what was he supposed to do? And we answer, stand firm, Paul. But have you and I ever been in a situation like that? Particularly in regard to the gospel, we are to remain true to to it and to stand firm on gospel truth will surely cost us something, possibly everything. Brothers and sisters, look at the text. See the difficulty he was in. And I'm begging you, Let's together bow our heads and plead with the Lord. When then that day comes for us, we can take our own advice to stand firm on the gospel and plead with God that we will stand firm on the gospel. That we'll have the moral strength to rest in the enabling power of God's Holy Spirit and truly stand firm for the gospel despite the cost. See this as a warning. But I'm so 
glad the story doesn't end there. Just as God had been gracious with Abraham, with David, and with Solomon when they had compromised, even more so here. Before Paul goes to actually offer those sacrifices, there is the gracious intervention by God. God intervenes through a mistaken understanding of Paul's actions. Someone assumed he'd brought Trophimus or some other Greek into the temple. They start an uproar, and God steps in. Can't you see it? That's God's hand. Even in the midst of that turmoil of Jews getting mad at him and him being so uh, violently accosted, they have to pick him up and carry him out of there. That's grace. That's marvelous, wonderful, matchless grace of God. We all believe, breathe a collective sigh of relief. God had stopped him before it went too far. God preserved this dear, beloved brother from making a cataclysmic mistake. And here we have that wonderful truth of God's preservation of his people. God intervened in his life in that moment, as well as many others. And God has similarly intervened in all of our lives, hasn't he? To my embarrassment, I'll tell you a short story. I remember sitting there one day about to make a decision that I knew would compromise what I believed. And I picked up my phone to do what I was going to do, and the phone rang. God's timing is amazing. And I saw the name on the screen, and I just, thank you, Lord. You knew in that moment that's what I needed. I didn't need to hear anything. I talked about whatever you want to talk about. It wasn't anything serious. But just seeing that name, it was like God saying, I'm watching. Don't do it. Recall a story of a young pastor going to a hotel room late at night in fear and trembling and knocking on the door and telling the man who came to the door to get dressed, clean himself up, and go home to his wife. Because the woman he was in the room with was not his wife. And the man got up and went back to his wife. And nobody was ever told. He was restored to his marriage and carried on. God graciously intervened before it was too late. How many times has God intervened and brought us from the broad road where we're on, headed straight for sin, for, <clears throat> sorry, for failure, for, sh- for shipwreck, But God intervened and prevented us from going too far. Praise God for his grace. But as much as we celebrate God's gracious intervention, and we're going to do that more next week, I want us to consider what can we take away from all this, especially in light of a hostile uh, to Christianity world in which we live. So application number one, what can we do to stand firm without compromise in the face of sin and temptation? Temptations rise all the time, don't they? Steal, cheat, lie, temptation with regard to the opposite sex, temptation with regard to what we look at, what we read, what we think, where we go, who we're with, all of it. And in all temptation, the Bible makes a very clear point. Prevention is better than a cure. So we remember and we practice what Jesus told us. Didn't he tell us? He taught us to pray, didn't he? Get me out of temptation and deliver me from evil. No, he didn't. He said, Lord, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When was the last time you got up in the beginning of the day and said, Lord, please, you know my day. You know what I'll be confronted with. 
don't take me into temptation. Keep me from it and deliver me from evil. And you know, God is so gracious because you know what? Sometimes temptation catches us. It never catches us with a big sign that says, temptation coming. Like on the highway, you know, temptation, one hour from now, brace yourself. Temptation in, in 40 more minutes, brace yourself. No, it doesn't do that way, does it? It just slides up alongside of us. And before we know it, we're hearing the little word whisper in our ear. One look won't hurt. Nobody will notice a couple of bucks. It's okay. Isn't that true? But the Bible tells us, and it's on the bottom of your little note sheet there. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. And it's true, brothers and sisters, God provides a way of escape. Don't ever say, sin made me do it. The devil made me. No, he didn't. I'll help. Let me tell you right now from painful personal experience, the devil may have suggested it, but I did it. It's true. Like Joseph, we learn when to stand firm and when to run away. I love that story. She keeps coming at him. Come on, lie with me. Let's go. My husband's away. The house is empty of all the servants. Nobody will hear. But Joseph knows that God is watching. And so in that moment, rather than argue this point and present a a, a nice biblical case to her why this is a bad idea, he just drops his jacket and boots it out of there as fast as he can go. So brothers and sisters, how we deal with temptation and those issues when compromise comes up, number one, we plead with God to help us, to keep us from temptation. And if it arises, to provide a way of escape and deliver us from evil. Are we praying like that? What do we do if we're being tempted to compromise the gospel? That's a little more difficult. In the context of a church, Christians on either side of us saying, you know, you know, it's not going to matter. I mean, it's no big deal. We could just, ah, it's only one. I, had a, I actually had a pastor one look at me one day and say, oh, come on. It's only one verse in the Bible that actually says that. I might be adding emphasis by the way I'm saying it, but that's what he said. There's only one verse in the whole Bible that says that. What's the big deal? I said, because there's one verse in the Bible that says that. That's the big deal. Simply. How do we deal with it when we're tempted to compromise the gospel? We remember the example that left to us by Jesus. You remember the scene? He's in the middle of the chief priests. And the high priest stands up and comes forward and questions Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus, in his humanity, knew and understood full well, if he said yes, they will, it's his own death sentence for blasphemy. In his humanity and his deity together, he can only tell the truth. And what does he say? And Jesus said, I am the name of God. 
And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That was a statement of his authority as the Son of God, the Son of Man. That was his declaration that they'll see him and he will come in power to judge the earth. He was saying, I am the Son of God. And all that that means, I don't think he jumped up on a table and shook his fist and said, I am. In effect, I'm going to get even. He didn't do that. I think he probably looked up and in a quiet voice just simply said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And they knew full well. When the moment came, Jesus declared the truth with unvarnished, uncompromising simplicity and clarity. He left no room for doubt as to who he was and what the truth was, in which in this case was the same thing. He is the truth. He stood there and said it. You say, how do we follow that example? In 1 Peter 2, you know, as I get older and read all through my Bible on a regular basis, I find some verses are just like shining lights, you know. They, they, they touch me every time I read them. This is one of them. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 24, it says, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly or righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. We remember the example left to us by Jesus. He stated the truth. He didn't say very much during that whole trial scene in his life. But he stated the truth simply and clearly, and he trusted God that whatever was coming, God would deliver him. And we know he did. We remember the example, and we plead with God to stand firm on the gospel, and plead with God that we would not be brought into temptation, and plead with God for the strength to take the blows when they begin to fall. But something else. What if you're already there? You know the Lord. You know the scriptures to some degree. And before the Lord and the unwavering accusation of your conscience, you know you have already compromised. And you've given it a temptation. And right now you are living a lie. Just to be clear, I have no knowledge of anybody in this room doing that. But something tells me that that may be the case for somebody here. What do you do? How do you get out of that muddy, sticky, messy situation? I promise you it's going to hurt a little bit. But I want you to know one thing before all else and with all else. There is grace for forgiveness. There's grace for restoration. In the Old Testament, the book of Joel said, the plague of locusts is going to come. God is going to judge your sin. It's going to eat everything in its path. What the the old one doesn't eat, the middle-aged one eats. And what the middle-aged one doesn't eat, the young ones are going to eat. And when it's all done, there'll be nothing left. And he makes a great statement. He says, but God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. 
My brother and my sister, if you're in this room and you have begun to compromise in sin issues in your life or in the truth of the gospel, I want you to know there's grace for forgiveness. That's what this passage shouts to me. My hero, my, the guy I look up to in the scriptures, in that precious situation made a bad decision. But God intervened and there was grace. My brother and my sister, if you're in that kind of a mess, you've begun to compromise and you know you're going the wrong way and you recognize the voice of the Spirit of God and your conscience poking away at you while I'm talking, I assure you, there's grace, forgiveness. Cry out to God. Cry out to God for help to repent and for forgiveness of the sin that you've engaged in against the Lord. Ask us, ask me, ask one of the elders, If you're embarrassed, I understand that. Ask someone close to you whom you can trust for help. I think you'll discover that you already know the way out of the mess. But you might need some help to get there, and that's okay. Remember, remember. Well, standing for the truth is costly. The cost of the consequences of compromise and sin is infinitely greater. But God is gracious, and there is forgiveness for you because Jesus died on the cross to purchase that forgiveness for your sin. What a great God we have. How often do we fail him? All the time. How often does he restore us and pick us up and brush us off and put us back together and set us back on the right way? How great is our God. Compromise. Compromise is costly. But God is gracious. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come again this morning, and Father, we bow before you. Father, we just begin by saying, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross. Death because he refused to compromise. He held fast to what he knew to be true. Entrusting himself into your hands, he endured so much against himself. Father, this morning we just cry out to you for a fresh vision of that grace. Father, we pray that you would work in each of our hearts. Father, my conviction is there are some here this morning who have begun to compromise. And I plead with you, O God, be gracious with them and draw them back. Show them the way out, the way through. Father, for this church, we just would ask you, O God, for your hand to be upon us yet again. Father, we cry out to you that there would be repentance. There would be a renewed passion and a renewed zeal for holiness. A renewed zeal to live for the Lord Jesus. Father, we ask you for your hand 
We give thanks to you, O God, for this wonderful time of worship that we've endured. Not endured, Lord, enjoyed. Father, we thank you. We praise you, O God, for your goodness to us. And we give thanks in his precious name. Amen and amen. We're going to sing.